the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. Uh, God's Word says this, verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Life-saving mission sums up the work of Jesus Christ. Redemption, regeneration, transformation, salvation has always been the plan of God to His glory. Jesus is the culmination of that plan. And the commissioning of the disciples in this passage conveys what is to happen next. A preview of what is to come as the mission of God's people until His return. Just like last week, as we saw Jesus rejected in His hometown of Nazareth is a microcosm of His great rejection at Calvary, which saved us from our sins, the sending out of the twelve to the villages to preach the gospel and to show the works of the kingdom is a microcosm of the great commission that Jesus will give to them in Matthew 28 and documented in Mark 16:15. It's a small glimpse of what is to come. This ragtag group of 12, their objections to the ministry of Jesus thus far haven't necessarily painted the disciples in the brightest of lights. It seems almost each and every week that there's some sort of questioning or uncertainty in the disciples that surrounds the ministry of Jesus. We can almost picture a Peter who was inspired these words, who these were his first-hand account to John Mark, that's Mark's gospel. So Peter telling his story under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can almost see them maybe around the campfire swapping stories and Peter kind of chuckling to himself about all the times that they sold Jesus too short during his ministry. And yet, in the shadow of the rejection of the Messiah in his hometown, in the shadow of the disciples' questioning of Jesus, their fear, remember their fear in the storm, their chuckles aimed at when Jesus sought out the one who had touched his cloak in the crowd, In the midst of all of this, Jesus continues to reveal His mission. And He commissions the disciples in their flaws, in the midst of their flaws and their imperfections, what for the work that they will eventually take up after the ascension. Just like last week, again, the sending of the twelve is a microcosm of what is to come, the Great Commission, that Jesus will later charge the apostles to go and make disciples. So what's the main idea for this morning? What's the main idea of this passage? It is this. 
Our mission is to preach the gospel and advance the kingdom. You see, we have the same mandate that the disciples have here in this passage, to go and preach the message of repentance and show what the kingdom of God is like. Our mission is to preach the gospel and advance the kingdom. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. That should uh, make you amazed right there that God would use us imperfect vessels to be reconcilers, to draw people, to point people to the work of Christ. We make the appeal to people for restoration. Paul uh, continues, he says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, these words, be reconciled to God. That's the message that we bring, follower of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Jesus shows this practically in this partnership. Partnership. He sends out the disciples two by two. Partnership. We have partnership in the gospel. See, we were not set free in order to just fly solo. But we were set free for relationship. We don't go at it alone. We are partner, partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear this, Christianity is not a solo religion. We cannot practice the Christian faith apart from being in a community of followers of Christ, together, present, in person. We work together as a community. People will say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Then you're not a follower of Christ because you cannot practice the Christian faith by yourself. You only can practice the Christian faith in a community of followers of Christ. That's how our faith is applied and played out. We see it in the ministry of Jesus. He calls men to Himself to disciple. He's radically different from the rabbis in Jewish culture who would sit and teach and wait for people to come. Jesus went out and sought disciples. He invited them to follow Him. They left all they had. They followed Jesus. And then Jesus does something else that is drastically different. He sends them out to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel, and to show the works of the kingdom of God. We practice our Christian faith with others. And again, this is evident in the ministry of Jesus. Now we want to look at the layers of relationship here, the layers of partnership, you see, because Jesus reconciles us to a key relationship first. The work of Christ reconciles us to a relationship with His Father, a partnership with Him, a covenant with God through the work of Christ, through His perfect life, death, and His resurrection, we are reconciled vertically with God the Father. And that relationship, that partnership with God, transforms our horizontal relationships, those around us. Scripture speaks to this. Read the letter of 1 John. We love God by loving others. It's how we practice, again, our faith. Through His work, we're restored relationally with God, and we reflect this with the community around us. Mark 6, 7. Partnership. Where do we find that? And He called the twelve and began to send them out. I love this detail. 
two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Partnership. Two by two, the disciples are sent out. We're meant to be together. Why? Because it provides accountability, power. The word of proclamation is even more powerful when there's more behind it. We're together on mission in the midst of, hear this, varying backgrounds. When we look at the context of the disciples and their backgrounds, where they came from, they're men from very varied backgrounds coming together for the cause of the gospel. Varying social statuses, varying political persuasions sent out together. Imagine with me, if you will, for just a moment. And I'm reading this into the text a little bit here. But imagine this. Imagine the disciple, Simon the Zealot. Okay, a zealot in this culture means that he was a, a Jewish zealot. He was radically against Roman rule and the Roman Empire. He was radically against the government. In a sense, we could liken him to being some mountain man out in Idaho with a militia up in the mountains, just totally objecting to government and government rule. The zealots were radical people. They would fight against the Romans. So we have this zealot. Now, imagine this. Within the disciples also, we have Matthew, the tax collector. A tax collector collected tax on behalf of whom? The Roman government. Radically for government because that's how he got paid. These two men were both disciples of Jesus Christ. Would we agree that they are radically different in belief and background? Absolutely. Imagine for a minute that, you know, because if you've seen this in your life, God has a sense of humor. Imagine sending out two by two. It just so happens that Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector are sent off on mission together. Wouldn't it be just like God to send those two out? Can you imagine the conversations they had as they strolled together? But it's just like God to, to unify people who are radically different together under the banner of what? Jesus Christ and the gospel. The zealot against the state, a rebel to the Romans, the other profiting from the government, imposing taxes on behalf of the government for the sake of the gospel, their backgrounds played little role in their relationship for the mission of God. Church, we need to hear this message. We need to hear this, that our partnership is radically transformed by the power of the gospel. Our backgrounds and our social structure and our economic status fade away because Jesus is greater and better than those things. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-10 says this, Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. One of my favorite things in the church, this is going to sound really weird, is a good old-fashioned church work day. When we get a bunch of guys and gals in the church, and they come out, and we have all these little projects, and you always end up with 
someone maybe shoveling mulch that maybe you wouldn't normally talk to this person, but you get a good conversation going. I love seeing the unity under the banner of the church coming together, working together for that common cause. And what? Things happen way more quickly when we have a bunch of people here working together. It's the same concept. We're partners in the advancement of God's kingdom. We were never called to solo ministry. We were called to partner with each other to advance the gospel and advance the kingdom of God. And with this, Jesus uses imperfect vessels. Sinful humans reconciled through His work on the cross and His resurrection to carry out His purpose of reconciliation and kingdom expansion. You see, just one page back, the disciples smugly replied at Jesus when he sought the person who had touched his cloak. Just a few pages back, they snarled at Jesus as he slept through the storm. And just a few pages before that, they told him to get back to work and stop wasting so much time out praying to his Father. But God uses and grants authority to these imperfect men to carry out his mission. It's amazing. We see it in our church that God uses imperfect people. A bunch of messed up sinners coming together for the cause of the kingdom. Praise God. I want you to hear this. God will use you in the midst of your imperfection to further His kingdom. Are you ready? Too many of us, we look at our lives and we sell ourselves short. I mean, I'm not ready to do all that God has called me to do because I've got to put this thing to rest or I don't know enough about the Bible. Why don't you go through and read Hebrews chapter 11? It's a hall of faith. And then do a little bit of background study on each one of the men or women that are listed within that chapter. Unpack a little bit about their backgrounds. Abraham the father of our faith, lied about his wife being his wife and put her in a, let's say, compromising situation. You know what he's remembered for in Hebrews 11? He was a man of faith. Moses killed the person with his own two hands. He stood before God at a burning bush and he kept saying, God, I'm not, I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for this. I'm not your guy. I'm not your guy. One of the greatest figures of all of the Old Testament. What's he remembered as in Hebrews 11? A man of great faith. Church, Christian, hear this. God can use you in the midst of your imperfections, in the midst of your doubt, to be on mission for Him, proclaiming the gospel. Sometimes it's in the midst of our brokenness and our realness that people see Jesus for who He is. It's not because we're self-righteous, but because people see us struggle through sin, struggle with doubt, and they see Jesus invading into that space and bringing light to our life that they can say, I want some of that. Allow God to use you in the midst of your imperfection. Does that mean to not be sanctified? No. Grow in Christ, please. But do not let your shortcomings and your doubts stop you from the mission that God has given you. God wants to use you to advance His kingdom.
We also see partnership in the villages that they are preaching the gospel in. Mark 6.10, they're to partner with that community. Jesus says this, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. They're not only working in partnership with each other, but seeking community in the town that they are staying in. Staying in somebody's house is an, is an intimate thing. Sleeping in the beds that they have. Eating food at their table. God has called them to get in close relationship with those in those villages that they are proclaiming the gospel to. And not to just look for better accommodations, but to stay there for the duration. They don't just leave for the next best thing, but work with what God has given them. And so here's my question. Who's your partner in ministry? Who are you partnering with? What Christians are you surrounded with that are going to hold you accountable, that you are going to proclaim the gospel with, that's going to pray for you, that's going to challenge you to study your Bible, It's going to hold you to God's standards. How are you building community with the people that you're trying to reach? Do you know your neighbor's names? Have you ever crossed that weird invisible grass-cutting line along the edge of your property and talked to your neighbor? It's not a mistake that you're in the neighborhood that you're in. God is sovereign over every molecule in His creation. You don't think that He has you in that neighborhood for a purpose and a reason? It's to shine the light of Jesus Christ. Get to know your neighbors. And don't leave it at that. Show them who Jesus is. Here's another question. Do you view yourself as a worker? Or is that just something that well, I give to the church, that's what the pastors do, or that's what the staff does, or I voted for elders and deacons to do all that stuff. Hear this, we're a partnership together. Everybody labors for Christ. When we drive out of this parking lot, we are entering in the mission field together. We don't just clock into Christianity on a Sunday morning and clock out as we exit. It's all throughout the week. Partnering together. You see, it's not just the work of the pastors, elders, deacons, and staff members to be gospel proclaimers and evangelists. It's everybody in the church. Rather, the leadership actually equips the saints for the work of ministry. That's what God's Word says, Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. It says, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, hear this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, all of us together, advancing the kingdom of God. Do you see yourself as a worker? That's why, church, each and every week, I'm going to stand up here and challenge you through the gospel to go out and be on mission for God in our community. I want to see Shepherdsville transformed. Who's with me? I want to see Bullock County transformed. Who's with me? 
I want to see Jefferson County transformed. Who's with me? Spencer County, Nelson County. See, I'm getting to know my stuff. I've been here for a year. <laughs> Here's another thing. Jesus calls them to this, our next point, wartime lifestyle. A wartime lifestyle. I want to be careful with this one. As our elder Brian Hall said last year when he was preaching, context, 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 right? We want to get the context right. When Jesus tells them, he, it says in Mark 6, 8 to 9, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Now, context around this, these guys are being sent out on a short-term mission. Okay, we don't commission missionaries in our church and send them out and say, hey, I hope it works out for you out there. We'll be praying. Take a couple pairs of clothes with you. No food. I hope it pans out for you. No, we, we equip them. We finance them. We pray for them. We stand in the gap when their uh, van breaks out out in the bush and they have, their tire blew out. We're going to send money to help them out. We want to advance the kingdom and we're going to source people that are out on the front lines of ministry where the gospel is being proclaimed, we're going to source them correctly, okay? So in context here, Jesus is sending them out on a short-term mission trip. Think of it like that. When you go on a short-term mission trip, do you take everything that belongs to you? No. When you go on vacation, right, you just take a suitcase with a few items, right, ladies? <laughs> my wife has a way of filling up every square inch of space in the back of my truck when we go camping, I love you. Just kidding. <laughs> Here's the thing. Wartime lifestyle. Be equipped for your mission that's in front of you. You see, this was an urgent mission trip for the disciples. Again, we liken this to our short-term mission trips. You don't take everything you own. You take a suitcase and a few necessities. Again, God's Word, Mark 6, 8-9, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Only what you need. Non-essentials are stripped away for the good of the mission. They didn't need to be weighed down with a bunch of stuff. And Jesus does this. He creates an element of dependence on Him in their life. Who can relate to this? You've been stripped of everything. That's all you have is your calloused knees to lean down and pray before the God of heaven. Nothing else. Jesus does that to the disciples here. He says, let's see what you're made of. Don't take anything with you. Just the clothes on your back, basically. Don't even take an extra jacket. Go out and preach the gospel. You better believe they're depending on God in those moments. And what a privilege that is when you're in that moment of complete dependence on God. That the only place you have to go is on your knees to beg God for mercy and to supply you with what you need. They didn't need to be weighed down with a bunch of stuff. They needed to depend on the Lord for His provision. Right? Number one, they had absolute dependence on God. 
Two, practically not having anything forced them to engage the people that they were going to minister to. They needed to grow relationally with those people because they were going to provide food and housing for them. You think you're going to be more intentional with your mission if you don't have anything and you're going into this community to share the gospel and they have something for you? You see the exchange there? Number three, they had to build community with the people they were engaging because they needed their hospitality. In a sense, they were both kind of ministering to each other. John Piper calls this wartime lifestyle. And I want to say this, I believe Christians could embrace this a bit more. What do we need? What are the essentials that we need for right now? John Piper says it this way, A wartime lifestyle implies that there is a great and worthy cause for which to spend and be spent. There's a great and worthy cause for which to spend and be spent. What is that cause? The cause of the gospel. The fame of Christ. The spread of the kingdom of God is worth it. Piper, in his book, Desiring God, quotes Ralph Winter. Have you guys heard of the Queen Mary giant ship? The Queen Mary, lying in repose in the harbor at Long Beach, California, is a fascinating museum of the past, used as both a luxury liner in peacetime and a troop transport during Second World War. Its present status as a museum the length of three football fields affords a stunning contrast between the lifestyles appropriate in peace and war. On one side of of a partition, you see the dining room reconstructed to depict the peacetime table setting that was appropriate to the wealthy patrons of high culture for whom a dazzling array of knives and forks and spoons held no mysteries. On the other side of the partition, the evidences of wartime austerities are in sharp contrast. One metal tray with indentations replaces 15 plates and saucers. Bunks, not just double, but eight tiers high, explain why the peacetime complement of 3,000 people on the ship gave way to 15,000 troops. How repugnant to the peacetime masters that this transformation must have been. To do it took a national emergency, of course. The survival of a nation depended on it. Hear this. The essence of the Great Commission today is that the survival of many millions of people depends on its fulfillment. You see, this great luxury liner was stripped away of all the plates and saucers and all the little spoons and knives that go around so elegantly for metal trays to transport troops to the war. It was a wartime lifestyle. Only the essentials are needed because we're at war with an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what God's Word says. To reconcile the lost to God. And God has chosen you, Christian, to carry out this mission. Are you ready? Jesus stripped away Every worldly luxury, all dependence was on Him. I want to urge you this morning, Christian, 
oftentimes we are so shackled by things in our life that it doesn't allow us the space for kingdom advancement or gospel proclamation because we don't have time. Why? Well, because I have two car payments I got to make, and I have a massive mortgage I got to make, and I have credit cards that have piled up because I needed to take that vacation and I didn't save for it or I didn't budget for it. And so, because of that, I've got to slave away 12 hours a day at a job that I don't have time to do those things. Do you see where stripping our lives away? helps us to advance the kingdom of God, to be ready. We're not just a battleship that takes forever to turn, but we're a small ship in the bay that can change its course quickly because we have all of the non-essential in our life stripped away. We're living in a wartime lifestyle because the gospel is more important than all the stuff that we have and all the distractions in our life. God has called us to that type of life. Lastly, we're sent in word and deed. We're sent in word and deed. The task is clear from Jesus. He essentially says this, do what I do. Do what I have done. Proclaim repentance and do the works of the kingdom. God's word says this, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They did the work of Jesus. They were given the authority of Christ to go out and shine the light of the gospel to the lost. And they didn't just do it in word, they did it in their works, in their deeds. That's why it says they cast out demons and they healed the sick. They ministered to people. You see, in, in the church, sometimes we end up in this war of, do we only preach the gospel or do we only minister to people, people's social needs or their felt needs? No, we do both. We see Jesus doing both. He calls to repentance and He ministers to hurting and broken people. What do the disciples do? They proclaim the gospel. They call people to repentance to follow Jesus and they minister to their felt needs. It's both. And that's a word of caution We're not only gospel proclaimers, but we are transformed in light of the gospel for good works, to minister to people, to meet their needs right where they are at. I've seen so much of this in the past four to five weeks. I've seen a video of a a gal who does a lot of podcasting. I'm not going to mention her name, but basically the gist of her message a few weeks ago was, shut up, pastor, just preach the gospel. That's all we need. Well, you know what? I look in the Bible and I see Jesus doing both, calling to repentance and being concerned for the needs of the oppressed and the hurting and the voiceless. Both. 
But then on the other side, we have churches that we're not going to talk about Jesus because we don't want to offend anybody. We're just going to help people out and we're going to feed them. We're going to be Jesus to people. We can't be Jesus. Listen to this. You can't live out the gospel. Jesus did that already. You can live in light of the gospel. We, we don't do one without the other. We meet the needs of people. We listen to them. We hear them. We pray for them. We bridge the gap for people. We speak out against injustices. We have many of them in our country that we can speak out on. But we don't just speak, we act. We're for life. I think we would all agree with that. I am for the life of the unborn. But what am I going to do about that? I can't just say I'm for that and then I'm done. No, I have to support ministries in my community that are going to minister to young ladies in crisis pregnancies. I can't just turn them away at the door and shun them because that person maybe has made a mistake in their life and has become pregnant. We welcome them with open arms, possibly adopting their children. You see, action comes along with what we say. Gospel proclamation and community transformation, they go hand in hand. It's not one or the other, it's both and. We do both together. We proclaim the Word of God and we do good works. It's what James says in chapter 2, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You see how that both ends? Show me your faith apart from your works. Hear what James says. I'll show you my faith by my works. I'm going to show you it's both together. Faith and works go hand in hand. Gospel proclamation and the works of the kingdom go hand in hand. Therefore, we are transformed to continually preach the gospel. Hear this, we use words. I don't much like the same, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Words are necessary. It's both. It's a light-filled life and words of life proclaiming Jesus as Lord and King. What are ways that we do this? We do this at this church. I don't want to highlight a couple ways that we do this practically. It's why we have a four-bullet county here at this church, because we want to meet the needs of our community. We want to engage our community. And we're hoping within the next year that we can expand that, the ways that we can stand in the gap for those that are less than in Bullet County. That perhaps in the wake of what we've seen in our, in our society with the coronavirus, I'm certain that there's going to be cuts coming to the educational system. The church is going to need to stand in the gap on those things. It's the way that we can minister to our community, but we don't just leave it at that. Why are we ministering to our community? Because Jesus has saved me. We minister to felt needs and spiritual needs, both. We do this through supporting local and foreign missionaries, through sending money out. We give about 12% of our giving a week away. I think last month we, gave, we sent out $4,000 because of your generosity, church, to go to fund missionaries 
in our community, in Kentucky, and all around the world. Thank you for doing that. We do this through equipping our church for evangelism and discipleship. Hear me, we're going to get much more intentional about this. As a church, we may have groups that start marching through these neighborhoods over here to meet our neighbors in the communities that surround our church. Meeting and talking to people and letting them know that we are praying for them, that we're here for them, and we want them to know Jesus. We do this by speaking and acting on social issues in our community. We speak out and we act. We do both. We see the disciples doing that here. Gospel proclamation, calling to repentance, but also healing the sick, casting out demons, shining light in the darkness. Church, that's what we've been called to do.